congregation, the cross of Christ, what does that mean to you? There's no one here who was not acquainted with the cross of Christ. Especially in these days, a lot of attention is given to it. And there are times where we read accounts of how dreadful the crucifixion of Christ was. Great attention is given to the physical horror of the crucifixion of Christ, the gory details of the crucifixion of Christ. A congregation, it was dreadful indeed. And yet remarkably, Scripture is rather silent on the gory details of the crucifixion of Christ. Because what Scripture does, what the Word of God does, it focuses on the meaning of the cross of Christ. It focuses on the meaning of the suffering of the Savior who was nailed to that cross. A congregation, we could say that the crucifixion of the Son of God, where He was nailed to the accursed cross to be the Savior and Redeemer of sinners, where He was nailed to the cross as the substitute for sinners, we can truly say that that is the central event of history. All of history revolves around what happened on the cross of Calvary. We could say that all of history before that anticipated the cross of Calvary. And everything that has happened after that flows out of what has happened on the cross of Calvary. Because had there not been that cross, and more importantly, had there not been a Savior nailed to that cross, there would be but one future for the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. There would only be condemnation. But thanks be to God that because of that cross, we now have the glad tidings of the gospel. That because of that cross and what was accomplished on that cross by God's only begotten Son, who in the fullness of time became the mediator and savior of sinners. And because of what he accomplished, therefore, God can now be reconciled with sinners. Therefore, and therefore alone, there is salvation for sinners. And therefore alone, do we have the ministry of reconciliation that may take place time and again, also here in this sanctuary. And as I already alluded to in prayer, that's why the Apostle Paul stated so boldly to the Corinthians, I have determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Apostle Paul understood that the cross is at the very center of all of God's purposes. He understood that it was the very centerpiece of God's eternal good pleasure. He understood that without that cross, 
There would be no church. There would be no salvation. And that's why he so desired to glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, my dear congregation, do you understand the value of this cross? Do you understand the preciousness of this cross? Have you been so taught by the Holy Spirit to recognize that your only hope is in this crucified Savior? Have you recognized that that Savior came not to be a problem solver, not to be a friend and to be a helper, but He came to save us from our sins? And that's why he was so aware of that already as a young boy. And a 12-year-old when he was in the temple. And when he saw with utter amazement everything that pointed to him. Oh, already then he understood why he had come. And he uttered these remarkable words to his parents and said, Oh, wished ye not that I must be about my father's business. That's why with God's help, we're going to focus again for a few weeks on the Father's business that He came to do. And we will do that this time by focusing on those remarkable sayings of Christ, those utterances that He uttered at the cross, seven in total. And we will begin then with the first one tonight, which you can find in the portion of Scripture we read to you, Luke 23, verse 34, and we will read the first portion of that verse. So let us hear God's Word in our text. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so as we consider this first utterance of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, First of all, the remarkable timing of this utterance. Again, boys and girls, if you have your Bibles open and you're reading the text with me, it begins with the word then. That's a very important word, then. At that specific moment, and we read in the previous verse what happened, they crucified him and two malefactors with him, one on either side, then Then, said Jesus. So the timing of this utterance. Secondly, the objects of this uttering, namely the them. Then, said Jesus, Father, forgive them. And thirdly, we will consider the significance of this utterance. The significance of the fact that this was the very first utterance, that these were the very first words that came from the lips of the crucified Savior. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so the timing of this utterance, the objects of this utterance, for whom Jesus prayed this prayer, and then the significance of this utterance. Congregation, it is astonishing It is astonishing that on the cross of Calvary, where Christ endured unspeakable physical suffering, and the suffering He had endured already before being nailed was unspeakable. He had been scourged. 
He was suffering from hydration. And now he was nailed to the accursed cross. What would we expect from him? We would expect him to groan. But instead, he opens his blessed mouth and he speaks. In other words, even on the cross of Calvary, Christ did not cease his prophetic ministry, even on the cross of Calvary. The living Word of God who was made flesh, Emmanuel, the living Word speaks. And He speaks why? He speaks for our benefit. He spoke for our benefit. Because ultimately in these seven utterances, there are seven of them total, and of course that's not arbitrary, because that is the number of perfection. But in those seven utterances... Christ actually teaches us about the very purpose and nature of his suffering. In those seven utterances, Christ the living word, as it were, gives us his own commentary on what he was experiencing. So let me just read to you what those seven utterances are. Of course, I just read the first one to you, Luke 23, verse 34. The second one is Luke 23, verse 42. Verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so next week, the Lord willing, we are going to consider this remarkable event where Christ actually dialogues with one of those malefactors. Then his third utterance is in John 19, verses 26 to 27, where we have these words, Woman, behold thy son. And then behold thy mother. The fourth, the central of those seven utterances, we find in Matthew 27, verse 46, where in utter forsakenness he cries out in holy bitterness, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then when he comes out of that darkness, he says in John 19, verse 28, I thirst. And then followed in John 19, verse 30, by those remarkable words, it is finished. And then the last, the final of those seven in Luke 23, verse 46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. A congregation, boys and girls, do you realize how very difficult it was for the Lord Jesus to utter those words? Do you realize the extraordinary pain that he suffered to utter those words? Because when someone was nailed to the cross, when their, the, the, the nails had been driven probably through their wrists on the horizontal bar and also through their feet, their whole body, the whole body weight was hanging. And in order for them to breathe, they literally had to push up their body with excruciating pain, and then their bodies would sink down again. And so for the Savior to open his mouth, for the Savior to utter those amazing words, it cost him extraordinary pain and extraordinary discomfort. 
But so great is the love of this Christ, so great is the love for his children, so desirous he was that we, throughout the ages and throughout the centuries, that we would understand the very nature of his suffering, that we would benefit from that suffering, that out of love for his Father and love for his people, he endured the excruciating pain, and he would raise his body, and then he would utter these remarkable words. And so, of course, these opening words are also a very noteworthy fulfillment of prophecy, prophecy that we find in Isaiah 53, verse 12, where we read this, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And we read that, of course, in verse 33. It says, and they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right and the other on the left. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was treated as a transgressor. As a matter of fact, he was treated as if he were the worst transgressors. In the portion of Scripture that we read to you, we also read how wickedly the people of Israel, who had been so extraordinarily blessed by the ministry of Christ, how wickedly they preferred Barabbas over Christ. Barabbas, who was the number one criminal in Israel. And what would happen traditionally at such an event is that the vilest criminal, the worst criminal, would be nailed to the center cross. And so that center cross was actually meant for Barabbas. But now Jesus is nailed to that center cross. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was treated as if he were the number one criminal in Israel. He took the place of a man who had a remarkable name. His name was Barabbas. Do you know what that means, boys and girls? Do you know what Barabbas means? It means, and write it down, it means son of the father. Think of it. Son of the Father, Barabbas. And now instead of this Barabbas being nailed to the center cross, the real Barabbas, the real Son of God, the real Son of the Father, takes the place of this man who was not worthy of that name. And yet that's how God created us. He created us as sons and daughters of the living God. So Barabbas would have been a very appropriate name for Adam. He was a son of the Father. But this Barabbas was a sad spectacle, a sad example of what we have become as fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And so now Christ is numbered with the transgressors. And the real Barabbas, the real son of the Father, takes the place of this Barabbas. And it says... He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Because that's what he's doing here. Here, the very first thing that we observe at the cross is an interceding priest, an interceding high priest. The very first words that come from his lips are words of intercession. It's remarkable that his first utterance begins with the father name, 
And his last utterance begins with the Father name. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So even here, in spite of this intense suffering, Christ was so profoundly aware of that special relationship between him and his Father. And it was only during the three hours of darkness that even that was taken from him and where he no longer called upon him as Father and said, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he begins and he ends by calling upon that Father name. He was always conscious of that relationship. Especially you find it in the Gospel of John. How aware he was of that intimate relationship that he had with his Father. How conscious he was of the reason why he had come to do his Father's bidding, that he had been sent by the Father to accomplish the work of redemption. And it was actually his confession of that name that was the grounds for his indictment, the grounds for his condemnation. Sanctimoniously, they cried out, oh, now he has blasphemed. They accused him of blasphemy because they realized that by referring to God and his father that he considered himself to be equal with their father. At least they knew that much theology that they were able to figure that out. And so they accused him of blasphemy. What's also remarkable is that he ends his ministry As he began it, he ends it with prayer. He begins here at the cross. He utters a prayer, a remarkable prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He also began his ministry. In Luke 3.21, we read that when he was baptized, that remarkable event in redemption history, when he was inaugurated as God's anointed priest, it says it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying. So he began his priestly ministry with prayer, and now he ends his priestly ministry with prayer. But most importantly, congregation, by uttering this prayer, Christ reveals to us that which was uppermost on his mind. By this petition, Christ clearly communicates to us that he understood precisely and fully for which purpose he had been nailed to that cross. He understood that his sacrifice was necessary. He understood that he had to shed his blood. He understood that he had to endure God's wrath to secure the pardon of sinners. He understood that without his sacrifice, sinners could not be reconciled with God. Congregation, we can only be reconciled with God. We can only be restored into God's favor if our sins are forgiven. It is our sin that separates us from God. It is sin which is the great offense. We have no idea how offensive sin is to God. And the cross, you see, is God's visual object lesson to us to instruct us how offensive sin is. So offensive that He 
caused his son to endure this suffering. He subjected. It pleased, it says in Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. So ugly, so vile is your and my sin that it necessitated the crucifixion of Christ. And Christ knew that it was his sacrifice alone that could be the foundation upon which a holy God who is of pure eyes than to behold evil, whereby a holy God would be able to pardon sinners. That was obviously foremost on his mind. And so when he hung there, now there is some dispute, some, some commentators argue that he already uttered that prayer when he was still laying on the ground, because probably what they did, they nailed him to the cross while the cross was laying on the ground, and then they resurrected. It doesn't matter. But one thing is very clear, that when Jesus looked at his crucifiers, when he considered those soldiers when he considered the people who had been screaming on top of their lungs, crucify him, demanding his destruction, he looked at them as sinners who needed to be forgiven. What an astonishing reality. What an astonishing display of who Christ is. What an astonishing evidence of a Savior who came to seek and to save that which is lost. A Savior who came into the world to give Himself as a ransom, not for friends, but as a ransom for enemies. Oh, Jesus knew that through His suffering alone, the foundation could be laid upon which God would be able to freely forgive sins. And that's why he said, Father, Father, forgive them. We'll see in a moment. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's why that little word then is so important. Boys and girls, I pointed it out to you, that word then. And we know, boys and girls, you know that every word in the Bible counts, right? We know that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that means we have to pay attention to every word, and this word is so important. Then said Jesus. Then, then, after he had been so grievously rejected by his own people, his own people among whom he had walked, his own people to whom he had preached, his own people whose sick he had healed, he had raised the dead. He had fed them. He had done countless miracles. To whom he had manifested his amazing love and his amazing compassion. These people had rejected him. The crowd that stood before him had demanded his death. Crucify him. Crucify him. These are the people, as we saw this morning, who had the audacity to invoke God's covenant curse. These are the people who cried out, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. These people made a statement by their rejection of Christ in favor of Barabbas. 
that they viewed him to be the very chief of sinners. Then, then after he had endured that, oh, how that must have intensified his suffering. But also after he had been brutally abused by the Romans. Oh, they were, they were ruthless. Those boys were used to doing this. The Romans used crucifixion all the time. They were ruthless in how they treated him. They brutally, without any compassion, drove the nails through his wrists and his feet and nailed him to the cross. Then, after those blessed hands and feet had been nailed to the cross, those hands with which he had blessed so many, those hands with which he had touched lepers, those blessed hands, but also those feet, the feet of him who brought the glad tidings of the gospel to his own people. And so then, then, when the wickedness, the depravity of man had reached its absolute zenith, if ever we see the depravity of man, the wickedness of man, if ever we see that man by nature hates God, we see it at the cross of Calvary. Because what ultimately happened is here the creature crucified its creator. The creature crucified its creator. Because the one, boys and girls, you realize the one who was nailed to the cross wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth. The one who was nailed to the cross is none other than the eternal Son of God by whom and for whom all things exist. He was the one that literally enabled those soldiers to do their wicked deeds. They could not have moved one muscle without his sustaining power as creator. And so here at the cross of Calvary, man's enmity towards God finds its fullest expression. So depraved is the heart of men. So wicked are we by nature. Because ultimately, you see, as fallen creatures, as fallen human beings, we have no use for God. Plain and simple. The moment Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie, that they could be as God. From that moment on forward, man no longer has any use for his maker. Because ultimately, the desire of every fallen sinner is to be as God. And you see, when Christ came in the fullness of time, when he came and walked upon, among his own people, God came so near to man. The Creator literally entered his own creation, walked upon this earth, walked among the people. God came so near. And it's remarkable that precisely in that setting we see the vilest demonstration of human wickedness. Congregation, do you believe? Do you believe that you are that depraved by nature? Do you believe that your heart is that wicked by nature? Do you believe that had you been there, you would have done likewise? 
Because it wasn't just the Romans who crucified Christ. It wasn't just the people of Israel. Ultimately, we are all responsible for what happened at that dreadful moment. And then, then after all of this happened, then after this, hor- after this vile rejection of Christ in favor of Barabbas, then after he had been so brutally abused, then when he hung between heaven and earth, then when he faced and encountered the most wicked manifestation of human depravity, then he opens his mouth. And he could have opened his mouth and he could have demanded that fire would come from heaven and would strike them dead. He could have done that. You know, boys and girls, what happened in the garden, right? When those soldiers came to capture him in John 18. For a moment, he showed his power. For a moment, he demonstrated that he would not be captured as a victim, but it would be his own choice. Then he uttered those words when they said, when they asked him, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And then he uttered those amazing words, I am. I am the name of God. I am. And you know what happened to the soldiers? They fell back to the ground. Jesus could have done that here too, in one moment. But then, then, Jesus opens his mouth, and instead of desiring their destruction, instead of pronouncing woe upon them, it is obvious that he was preoccupied with their salvation. Try to grasp that for a moment. He was preoccupied with the salvation of the very people who rejected him, the very people who had crucified him. That's astonishing. Ah, you see, when Jesus looked at that multitude that stood before him, he knew them. He knew that there were many among them for whom he was dying, for whom he was giving himself as a ransom. Many who, on the day of Pentecost, would be pricked in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and would come to a saving knowledge of the Christ they had so grievously rejected. This is the Christ congregation, the Christ who was nailed to the cross, a Christ who, on the cross, in spite of all his physical suffering, was preoccupied with his Father's glory and was preoccupied with the salvation of the very people who had rejected him. In Psalm 45, we have a prophecy about Christ. And it says there that grace was poured into his lips. That's what comes across the lips of the Savior. What comes from his lips here, congregation. And think of what I said this morning. is the very opposite of what these people deserved. What they deserved is that fire would come down from heaven. What they deserved is that the earth would open up and swallow them up, as happened to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. But instead of denouncing them, instead of of pronouncing wrath upon them, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And it brings us, of course, already to the dam. The dam. Of course, that means in the first place, the people that nailed them to the cross, as I already alluded to. But not just for those Romans. He was praying for the Pharisees. He was praying for the people before him. For the people that hated him. But more than that, Christ was not only concerned with them. Not only preoccupied with their salvation. Ultimately, he was preoccupied with the salvation and with the redemption of an innumerable multitude of sinners. And dear believer, to make it very, very personal, I can assure you that he was preoccupied with your salvation. He was praying that you would become the beneficiary of his suffering. He was praying with bleeding hands and with bleeding feet. He was praying that because of that precious blood that he was shedding, that your sins could be forgiven. Father, forgive them. Then he adds these remarkable words, for they know not what they do. Very plain language, boys and girls. Jesus realized that the people there were were actually clueless as to what they were doing. They had no idea of the gravity of what they were doing with their wicked hands. In some ways, they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. When Pilate gave them the choice, they made that choice consciously that they wanted him to be crucified rather than Barabbas. The Pharisees, in some sense, knew what they were doing. Their enmity was very, very focused. Our congregation, especially during the last three years of his life, his public ministry, there was overwhelming evidence that he was the real Messiah, that he was the Messiah prophesied in Isaiah 35. That's why ultimately those Pharisees committed a sin against the Holy Ghost when they had the audacity of calling a a triple miracle the work of the devil. So in that sense, they knew what they were doing. They knew they wanted to eliminate this man once and for all. Their enmity was so profound that when he raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the grave for four days, a most astounding astounding manifestation of who he was as the Messiah. They said, now we must kill him. Now we must eliminate him. In that sense, they knew what they were doing, and yet they did not realize what they were doing. They did not realize the gravity of what they were doing. A congregation, what this again emphasizes is that as sinners, we often sin ignorantly. And I'm going to explain that in a moment, what that means. Have you ever noticed, as you you read through uh, Leviticus and Numbers, that there are sacrifices for the sins of ignorance? And one commentator actually says, and I have to agree with him, do you realize that that's true for the vast majority 
of our sins. Do you realize how many sins already today you have committed ignorantly? Ignorant of the fact that you were sinning. The vast majority of our sins we commit ignorantly. It was very clear from the Old Testament. That makes no difference, you see. Sin is sin, even when we commit it ignorantly. Sin is sin in the sight of God. And here we have, in a sense, a sin of ignorance. They know not what they do. But you know what's interesting? That linguistically, there's a connection between ignorance and the verb to ignore. Ah, you see, that explains it. That's what we as sinners, that's who we are. By nature, we ignore God. We ignore His Word. We ignore His precepts. And that's what these men had done. They willfully ignored everything they had seen about this Christ. They ignored every word that had come from His lips. And with their, in their case, it was a, it was a willful ignorance. That's, what, that's who we are by nature. My friend, if you are still an unbeliever, if you have not yet come to Christ, do you realize what you have been doing every single day of your life until today? You have been ignoring God. You have been ignoring His Word. Even though you have had His Word, even though you know that Word, even though you have heard that Word, you are ignoring it. That's what an unbeliever does. He ignores God. And he ignores the Word of God. A congregation, that's why it's so amazing that Christ prays for such sinners as we are. We who as fallen creatures, we who choose to ignore our Maker, who choose to ignore His Word, who by nature treat God as a liar by not believing the record that He has given of His Son, for such people, he is praying, Father, forgive them. Even though they are sinning, when, and in some cases with willful ignorance, Father, in spite of the fact that they are ignoring everything I have told them, they are ignoring thy word, even though that because of this they do not realize what they are doing. Yet, Father, I pray for them. I pray that thou wouldst Forgive them. You know what's also remarkable? Is that when Christ prayed that prayer, He knew the suffering that would come in. He knew that in order for that prayer to be answered by His Father, He knew that He would have to descend into the very depths of hell itself. He knew that in order to secure the pardon for such sinners, he would have to descend into hell itself. He would have to experience the full reality of hell. That's what this prayer required. He knew that this prayer could not be answered unless he would do precisely that. 
He knew that that prayer could not be answered unless he would empty the cup of God's wrath fully to its last drop, and only then could that prayer be answered and could God forgive such wretched, such vile, such wicked, such perverted sinners. Such was his love, his love for his Father and his love for his people, his love for the very people who had demanded his crucifixion, his love for sinners like you and me. And remarkably, of course, that prayer was answered. It was answered then, and it's still being answered. It was answered immediately. We'll see that next week. The immediate result of this prayer is that the man next to him comes to conversion and suddenly changes entirely and realizes who he is and confesses his sinnership and cries out for mercy, as we will see next week. So immediately that prayer was answered for this malefactor who, just like the other one, had been deriding him, had been ridiculing him, had been mocking him. A man utterly unworthy of such a favor. A man to whom Christ was gracious, as we will see next week. A man who received the exact opposite of what he deserved. And then towards the end of the crucifixion, another conversion takes place. We read in verse 47, now when the centurion saw what was done, a Roman, He glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. He confessed. And that was faith, congregation. That was faith. That man saw in that crucified Christ, in that mutilated body, he recognized who he was, and only the Holy Spirit could have accomplished that. And so immediately, God answered that prayer. Because of that blood that was dripping from his son's hands, he answered that prayer and converted a Jew and a Gentile. Because he came to be the savior of the world, to be the savior of Jew and Gentile. And then, of course, that prayer was remarkably answered on the day of Pentecost. When 3,000 and thereafter 5,000, when nearly 10,000 people came to conversion in a very short time, the majority of whom had been screaming, crucified him. The majority of whom had said, his blood be upon us and our children. The prayer was answered. That tells us something about the value of the sacrifice of Christ. That tells you how precious that blood is to his Father. That blood which is of infinite value. That blood that is able to save the vilest and the most wicked sinner imaginable. And you know, Peter means no words. He told him plainly in his sermon, you have killed the Messiah. You have murdered the Son of God. And yet when they cried out, what must we do? As we saw this morning, what must we do? What must we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Repent and believe in that Christ 
that Christ whom you rejected, that Christ who gave himself as a ransom, believe in that Christ for the remission of your sins, what Christ is talking about here. Several commentators point out the fact that because of that prayer, God's judgment upon Jerusalem was, was postponed for 40 years. Because God's judgment upon that wicked generation should have come immediately. But because of that prayer, that judgment was postponed for 40 years. And God gave Israel, God gave Jerusalem space to repent. And then later we read remarkably in Acts 6 verse 7 that a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. A great company of the priests, of the very culprits responsible for the crucifixion. They were the beneficiaries of that prayer. And what do you think of Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus, the number one enemy of Christ, a man who was determined to eliminate that name from Israel, who viciously and relentlessly pursued the people of Christ. This man became not only a Christian, he became the most profound author of the New Testament because of this prayer. If there was ever a man who deserved to be damned, if there was ever a man who should have burned in hell forever, it was Saul of Tarsus. But Christ prayed for him Saul of Tarsus. And then we can go on and we can spread this out as a result of that prayer. The Gentiles to whom they went, the Gentiles to whom they preached, an innumerable multitude of Gentiles have come to conversion. And now we come close to home. If by the grace of God you are a believer today, you are a believer today because of that prayer. When God saved your soul, he answered that prayer. For Jesus Christ hung there for your sake. He hung there in your place. And in fact, we could say that Christ continues to plead this petition. But now, of course, as the exalted Christ at the Father's right hand. Because there we know that he ever lives to make intercession. Now, at his Father's right hand, he is continually pleading his merits. He says, Father, for the sake of what I have accomplished, for the sake of my sacrifice, Father, I beseech thee that thou wouldst pardon also that sinner. And dear child of God, Dear believer, that's why you are a believer today. That's the only explanation. Were it not, not only for what Christ has accomplished, but were it not for that prayer, your sins would not have been pardoned. As you see, God could not resist that petition because there was a petition uttered by his beloved son. And the father loves his son and delights in his son and delighted him, even in him there. 
And is so well pleased with him, so well pleased with his sacrifice, so well pleased with his precious blood that he was shedding even at that moment, that he cannot but respond favorably to that petition and to that intercession. And because of that sacrifice and because of that intercession, the God whom we have offended can freely pardon our sins. That's the great significance of this utterance. And of course, I've already woven it all through my message, but let's bring it all together. You see, what this petition unveils to us, congregation, this petition gives us a glimpse into the heart of God Himself. Remember, Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The one who is hanging there who is bleeding, the one who is praying this petition is none other than God manifest in the flesh, is none other than Emmanuel. And it's because God not only is infinitely holy, but ultimately He is a God of infinite love, and that's why He has been moved from all eternity to save wretched sinners like you and me. Because by giving His Son as a sacrifice for sin, God has demonstrated that He is the unchangeable I am that I am, and that He cannot deny Himself. And in order for His love to have a channel through which that love could flow, there was only one solution, that's the gift of His only begotten Son. Only through Him and only through that sacrifice would the love of God be able to flow freely to fallen sinners like you and me. That's why the cross was necessary. God is so holy that it required the crucifixion of His Son. And yet He is so infinitely loving as we will see, that when he cried out, it is finished, he rends the veil to demonstrate that the price has been paid, that the barrier is gone, and that he can now freely bestow his love on sinners like you and me. Psalm 86 tells us that God is a God who is ready to forgive, who delights to pardon. That has been his eternal desire. This is the God who has sworn by his own name that he has no pleasure in the death of sinners, but that we would seek him. And that's why Christ had to die. That's why it pleased God to bruise him. So that on the basis of that sacrifice, God could give free vent to the desire of his heart, and that is to be the God of sons and daughters of Adam, so that he could freely pardon all of our sins. Listen carefully. So ultimately, what happened on the cross, listen carefully to what I'm saying. God in his Son gave himself so that he can be himself. God gave himself so that he can be himself. That's his desire. That's his delight. That's why Micah, he cries out in holy amazement, 
Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? That's why, and we need to wrap this up, but that's why, and we will unfold it in the coming weeks as well. That's why we see the beauty of the gospel here, the glad tidings of the gospel, the fact that Jesus utters these words, the fact that he prays this prayer means that there is salvation for, as Bunyan calls them, Jerusalem sinners. Why does he call them Jerusalem sinners? Because they were the worst kind. And so this tells us that Christ came to give himself for the vilest of all men. And if you have, not yet, if you have never come to this Christ, that I may proclaim to you a Savior, a Savior who gave himself, who shed his blood in order that God can proffer to you peace and pardon, that God can freely pardon all of your sins. This is a Savior who stretched out his arms and who still does it, who stretches out those pierced hands and who says to sinners, consider who I am, come to me. Come to me, sinner. I gave myself for Jerusalem sinners. I gave myself for the vilest of sinners. And if you come to me, no matter how deeply you have sunk, no matter how vile your sins are, no matter what your record is, if you come unto me, I will receive you, and my Father will pardon you freely. All of that was secured by this Christ. And as a footnote, I have no time to unpack it. By the way, this also teaches us how we should treat our enemies, does it not? Are we not called to be Christ-like? Are we not called to pray for those who despitefully use us? If you ever have problems with that, if you ever struggle with praying for someone who is hostile to you, consider this petition. Consider what Christ did as our example. And so, my dear congregation, we can truly say that the greatest gospel preacher of all times, the Son of God, the living Word of God, speaks on the cross. And so he turned the cross into a pulpit. He turned the cross into a gospel pulpit. And in spite of his suffering, in spite of his pain, he proclaimed the gospel till his very, very last breath. How can you ignore such a Savior? I hope there's no one here who would dare any longer to ignore this Savior, who proffers peace and pardon. Oh, it is because of this Savior that God is willing and ready to pardon you. And dear believer, rest assured, let there be no doubt in your mind that that prayer is answered. And that by the very fact that you have come to Christ, 
and you have taken hold of Him and trusted in Him, I must declare to you that your sins are forgiven fully and completely and irreversibly because this prayer cannot and will not fail. This prayer will be answered until all those for whom He gave Himself will ultimately have been gathered in. Think of the beautiful words of Psalm 130. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And the answer is no one. No one, none of us can stand before this God. But then this beautiful turn, but, but there is forgiveness with thee. The very God before whom we cannot stand the very God we have offended, with that God there is forgiveness because of this Savior, because of what He did on Calvary's cross, because the Father will continue to answer the petition of His Son, who still, as the exalted Christ, is saying, Father, for the sake of what I have done, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen. Let's pray. Our faithful God and Father, our human words are so hopelessly inadequate to express the wonder of the gospel. Oh, what a Savior we have. A Savior who was preoccupied with our salvation a Savior who preached from the pulpit of the cross, a Savior who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, may that humble us, but may that also fill with holy joy, with holy amazement. Lord, that we would demonstrate by our lives that we love this Christ. Oh, what a, a debt of gratitude we owe Him who gave himself for us in order that we might live unto him. Grant us that grace in this coming week. Bless the labor of our hands. Protect and keep us. Gather with us again this next Lord's Day. Bless my time after this service as I hope to meet with our young people to answer their questions. We pray for thy blessing upon that as well. And hear us for the sake of this precious Christ who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen.